This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Migration Studies Society, I would like to welcome you all to this one-day workshop on the theme of the Arab uprisings, displacement and migration. Uh, we would like to thank all the speakers, the participants and the centres that supported us in this initiative. So the RSC, Refugee Studies Centre, the IMI, International Migration Institute, COMPASS, Centre on Migration Policy and Society and the Las Casas Institute at Blackfriars Hall. So before starting, I would like to draw your attention on the graffiti exhibition that takes place upstairs in the hall. And the Migration Studies Society has organized the exhibition with the Oxford Solidarity for Syria. Um, Ibrahim Fakri is an Oxford-based Syrian artist um, that has created those graffiti on the theme of refugees for this event. So uh, the other event that we organized today with the Oxford Solidarity for Syria is the screening of Not Who We Are, uh, that is a documentary by Carol Mansour uh, uh, depicting the life of Syrian refugees women in Lebanon. So it will take place at lunchtime. Uh, so this workshop today builds upon two previous events organized by the RSC and the IMI in 2011 and 2012 after the uprisings that analyzed the challenges posed by the Arab revolutions on uh, to human mobility. So. The conclusions of those workshops provide an interesting starting point for today's event. They emphasize the role of the uprisings in constraining movement, producing shifts between categories, forced and voluntary migration, and in generating greater attention to pre-existing migration flows. Moreover, the Eurocentric image of an invasion coming from the southern shore of the Mediterranean towards the European Union was contrasted with the fact that the Arab uprisings have generated a mainly intra-regional displacement. And I wanted to show this map um, from... So that's, that's a map of the displacement caused by the Libyan revolution that um, was realized by the, the network Migra Europe, Migra. And, yeah, and, and as we can see, the, so the flash that um, pictures the movements to Europe is minimal, and I, I mean, then we, we, can, we will be able to make comparison with the displacement caused by, caused by the Syrian crisis. So um, today, three years and a half after the beginning of the uprising, this workshop aims to investigate the broader relations between migration, displacement and revolts by exploring the short and long-term impacts of the uprisings on patterns and trends of migration and on institutional responses. So the first panel is entirely dedicated to the Syrian crisis and to the protection challenges faced by Syria's neighboring states and the EU. The second panel on transnationalism and social change explores the role of emigration and immigration in influencing broader processes of change in origin as well as in destination countries, uh, ranging from countries that have experienced the revolutions such as, um, such as those in Tunisia, to countries like Morocco or Saudi Arabia that have been only marginally or not at all touched by the protests. So the last panel will explore the theoretical links between migration and revolution and bring examples of new patterns and trends of mobility after the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. So let's, let us start with the panel on Syria. Uh, thank you and enjoy. Thank you very much. I, I want to uh, also thank the Migration Society because, as Katerina mentioned, this is the third workshop that we have held uh, here at the RSC in collaboration with IMI and also with Compass uh, related to the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprisings or the Arab Revolutions, uh, rebellions, whatever the term is that you want to use. Obviously, the, the first... Uh, workshop that we had was actually called North Africa in Transition, and we were looking very much at the movements from and out of Libya and Tunisia, etc. The second one, which was held in March of 2012, really was recognizing that there was an issue with the human mobility, with forced migration, and the institutional response, particularly out of the humanitarian um, aid regime. 
And we've waited two years. I think we were all kind of shell-shocked. I, uh, some of us, at least, have waited the extent of the displacement and migration emerging uh, from Syria as the Arab Spring dissolved into something really very different. My thanks to the Migration Society, because this has really been organized by them. Uh, and, uh, of course, IMI and Compass uh, and the RIC have been very happy to, uh, to contribute and to take part, but it's been all their hard work, so... I hope we can all celebrate with a drink at the reception at 5.30 um, uh, and uh, celebrate not only the hard work of the society, but um, also some of the discussions that emerge um, out of uh, this panel and those in the afternoon. Our panel uh, this morning really is focused on Syria, and I, um, I'm going to apologize because I'm, I'm listed as a chair and discussant, but actually I'm going to give an overview uh, of uh, the Syria uh, crisis uh, before I hand over to Madeleine um, Garlic, who will really look at the response to refugees from Syria in Europe. Uh, she'll have some very important things to say. I'll allude to them in my presentation. And then we'll move to Urs Brahas' uh, presentation, really looking at uh, southern Turkey, that northern border of Syria, southern Turkey, is one which seems to be the most critical at the present time. Uh, and then um, um, uh, Melmet Sigar's um, uh, presentation will be looking at what's happening in Turkey, certainly in terms of international law and domestic law. It is fascinating. Turkey is moving forward, uh, really, in a way that you don't see in the rest of the region in terms of changing its laws and its policies with regard to asylum and uh, temporary protection, uh, and perhaps it will be a template for uh, further development. I'm going to uh, pass out a, uh, a map for you to look at while I just set the PowerPoint up. I'm passing out this map for a couple of reasons. One, uh, and it's something that I'm, I hope I can, I can get across uh, in, um, in my, my, my 15 minutes. I have to watch this time so that I don't go over. The, the displacement uh, from Syria is really quite interesting. Um, it's quite interesting if you put it in the context of other displacements or current contemporary displacement in the modern Middle East. I'll just take you back to uh, consider the kind of outflows from Iraq. Um, I think at the height of the outflow from Iraq after the 2003 Anglo-American invasion and toppling of uh, Saddam Hussein was two million uh, people crossed borders, became refugees uh, in the region, but two million remained as IDPs. So 50% of the population flowed out and 50% uh, stayed in. The figures in Syria are really quite different. We think that there are about two million who have now at this point in 2014 have left the country, crossed a border, uh, either to Turkey, to Lebanon, uh, to Jordan, uh, a smaller number to, uh, as you can see from this map, to, uh, to Iraq, northern, particularly to northern Iraq, and some have gone as far as Egypt. But those who have stayed in the country but are internally displaced are more than 6 million, 6.5 million. So what you're seeing is people are being displaced but remaining in the country. And I hope that I'm going to be able to explain a little bit why uh, that's the case. Um, I'm going to, of course, give uh, gross over-exaggerations because I've only got about 15 minutes. Um, but it's far more complex than that, but um, I think it's, it's worth uh, pursuing. Many people have said that part of the reason why people uh, uh, haven't uh, fled out of the country uh, has to do with the kind of authoritarian police state that they've lived in and the recognition that the government has made numerous announcements that those who flee, particularly Palestinian refugees from Syria, will not be allowed to come back. And many who have crossed borders are fearful of registration for the same reasons. They feel that if they register, they will be regarded as traitors. If the government doesn't fall, they won't be able to go back. And that same kind of uh, mindset has also meant that a lot of people then are, are, are not fleeing. I think that there is a different explanation. But let me just show you a couple more of these slides. Sorry. Um, this is, again, just to give you a sense of the numbers. Um, this is from 2013. You can see that certainly last year the numbers flowing to Lebanon and flowing to Jordan were pretty much the same. Uh, Turkey also had some very large numbers 
Um, but if you, this is a more recent map produced by UNHCR. Um, it's a little bit more complicated to look at. It doesn't give you quite the same sense of numbers, but you can see that Lebanon now has more than a million. Uh, but the population of Lebanon is only about four million. So one out of every four persons in Lebanon now is probably a refugee from Syria, could be Palestinian, could be one of the stateless Kurdish uh, family groups, uh, uh, could be uh, uh, Sunni Muslim, could be Shia, uh, and the numbers in Jordan are, are, are quite high, but also Egypt and then in northern Turkey. Now those who know my work are going to say, oh no, she's going to talk about Bedouin. Uh, but I do have to talk about Bedouin because I think this is a very relevant issue and it helps explain why there is such great internal displacement rather than people crossing over um, and what that means. This little map is really showing you where, all, uh, where a large number of the, of the Bedouin tribes of northern Arabia sit um, and I'm using the term tribe here to really just dis to, to discuss a form of social organization of a society based on kinship, um, and that kinship um, is uh, organized in uh, a form of segmentary lineage. A lot of you have heard the expression, um, uh, um, uh, well, me or I against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, my cousin and I. Uh, and my brother is against the world. It's this solidarity of the kin group, which is extraordinarily important, but the kin group isn't actually tied to a particular place. It's, it's, it's a tie that's horizontal over vast territory, which means that these groups move, and they move transnationally. Um, uh, the two largest confederations, the Aneza and the Shammar, are known, uh, have, uh, I think, the, my next, well, uh, I was going to give a little bit of history, but I'm going to rush through that. Um, the, uh, one of the major groups has always moved between Iraq and Syria, and the other has always moved between Syria across the Jordanian panhandle into Saudi Arabia. So these links are extremely important, but movement within the country is also um, uh, uh, very important. Um, the, the Bedouin uh, of, of Syria have uh, for a very long time been able to operate as a state within a state much in the same way that the PLO was able to operate in Lebanon uh, from, uh, around the 1970s, 1980s. Um, the governments throughout the 1950s, 1960s tried to cut back on their power. They did. The one thing they couldn't do was to take away their right to carry arms. And this is the point that I'm going to come to. So nobody in Syria has been allowed to carry arms, but the Bedouin in the desert areas, in the semi-desert areas, have always had small arms. Um, and that has been up to the edge of these um, desert areas, which means Dera, Hams, Hama, and the edges of Aleppo. So if you think about it, these are the cities where the fighting became armed first. And the, the, the position I'm putting forward is that uh, these armed elements basically were the first groups to try and protect the local communities when the government started firing on demonstrators. Nobody knows the exact number of Bedouin. Uh, in Syria or in Jordan or in Egypt because the Bedouin are not considered an ethnic, uh, a separate group uh, for any kind of collection of data for the censuses. Um, for a very long time, the Syrian government uh, tried to maintain that they had fewer than a million Bedouin, uh, but in the last couple of years, there's been increasing self-identification as Bedouin, uh, and the numbers now are estimated to be closer to 3 million, so in effect, about 15% of the population. Um, significantly covering 80% of the land mass of Syria and coming up to these cities on the edge of the desert where so much of the fighting um, actually uh, 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 started in 2011. Uh, and even today with the final um, withdrawal of fighters from Homs, which some of you might have read about quite recently, most of these were Bedouin brigades who were defending their neighborhoods, were not going to give up, and eventually the settlement was such that they um, were allowed to move. Now, many of them didn't move out of the country, i.e. into Turkey, Lebanon, or Jordan, but basically found their ways to Saudi Arabia or to Iraq, uh, joining their kin groups. Uh, so that internal movement of the Bedouin, which is quite pronounced um, and contributes quite a bit to these, this figure of six, uh, six uh, plus million, are Bedouin uh, lineage groups uh, moving around the country, trying to get away from the fighting, but definitely um, trying not to actually cross the border. Um, because of the way in which more and more Bedouin have been self-identifying over the last decades, 
Um, some groups have sided with the government and some groups have sided with the opposition. Uh, many of the Bedouin groups that were involved uh, in helping the Syrian government maintain its control over Lebanon uh, up until 2005 <coughs> benefited a great deal from the kind of trade um, that occurred uh, in that area and have stayed uh, with uh, government forces. But I would say that more than half of the Bedouin are with the opposition. The current national uh, coalition uh, is headed by one of the largest, uh, one of the leaders of the largest Bedouin groups, Ahmed Jarbal, who you sometimes read about if you're following Syria, is uh, from one of the most important Shammar uh, Bedouin families uh, in Syria, but also in Iraq. So again, the lines are split. Uh, there's a lot of movement across to Iraq, across to Lebanon, across to Jordan, but not to Turkey. I'm going to leave Urz to explain why not to Turkey. It's a different kind of uh, constellation of, um, of kin ties and networks across the northern border um, of, of Syria. Um, so the movement into, uh, in this case, it's the northwest into the Hatay region of Turkey. Um, uh, at the beginning, uh, around April 2011, just a group of about 250 villagers fled into the Hatay, but then that became thousands and hundreds of thousands. Um, certainly by, uh, as you saw the figures, it was more than, more than half a million. The point about that movement is that people who have fled into that part of Turkey uh, have basically joined um, communities that are ethnically, linguistically, and religi religiously similar to themselves. It's really, the Hatay is like a microcosm of the, the part of Syria that borders on it, because of course the Hatay was part of Syria until 1938 when the French negotiated an agreement with, um, uh, with Turkey uh, to hand over uh, that part, but it's a, it's a region that's full of Kurds, of Turkmen, of Circassians, of Orthodox Christians, of Jewish communities, um, of Alawite uh, or Alevi, uh, Arabic-speaking Sunnis. It really is a microcosm of Syria. People have crossed the border to join kin or family. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense, and upon arrival, many of them have had um, a kind of temporary protection, but I'll, I'll leave... Uh, any further detail of that for us to discuss. Sorry, I, uh, I feel I'm racing across time. But, uh, let me just turn to Jordan, because I think that's also really quite interesting. Uh, again, uh, Jordan, the movement into Jordan has been mainly from the south of Syria, from the area around Dara. Many of these are Bedouin communities. Uh, some of them are actually Bedouin who have been displaced by drought, the previous five-year drought in northern Syria, the Jazeera. Many of those uh, had moved down to the area around Darha and sat there for a few years, and then eventually, uh, when their attempt to protect their neighborhoods failed, they crossed the border into, into Jordan. Um, so again, they are also crossing uh, into, into an area where they have kin. Uh, the northern part of uh, Jordan is mainly made up of Bedouin called Ahl al-Jabal, um, and these are the same tribes and lineages that are in the south of the country. So it's a move, again, to, um, to like. Lebanon is, uh, in some ways, uh, parts of Lebanon are also a microcosm of Syria. The Bakal Valley, which is seeing, I think perhaps more than 50% of the Syrians who moved into Lebanon are in the Bakal Valley in hundreds of, of small settlements. Um, I say it's a microcosm because, of course, the Bakal was part of Syria until 1923 when the French decided to create an enlarged. Lebanon and took this area over, but many of those who fled the border and stayed in the Bukha Valley have kinship ties in the valley. Um, uh, although, again, there are many stateless Bedouin in that area who also have been uh, remarkable in their response in providing uh, some kind of hospitality to those crossing over. But uh, as much as um, the, the Bakah is the, is the microcosm. Something else has been going on in Lebanon. Many of those uh, crossing over have found their way to Beirut or to the major cities to self-settle. And of course, the more than 100,000 uh, Palestinians who had been in Syria since 1948 have crossed over into Lebanon and gone uh, and joined, um, uh, if not kin, people from the same villages of origin from 1948. Uh, in areas around Saida 
and uh, elsewhere, particularly in the south of Lebanon. So uh, again, in Lebanon, uh, there are no camps. It's mainly local hosting, but this kind of uh, uh, um, hospitality um, is, uh, you could say at this point, where is a bit thin because the numbers are so great and the assistance that's required um, is also uh, terribly important. So what I hope I've done in this kind of romp through um, some history and uh, some discussion of the, uh, uh, of the overview about Syria, I hope I've uh, at least persuaded you to think about uh, why we're getting so many uh, Syrians who are being displaced by the fighting but are refusing to cross borders, uh, the importance of kinship ties in, uh, in reflecting um, uh, where to go, the kind of decision-making in the family. Uh, it's not kind of a haphazard flight anywhere, but it's very well thought out in terms of social capital, networks, and kinship ties. Um, that the tribes of Syria, which are really very much overlooked, but are becoming increasingly more important in terms of not only the fighting to protect the local neighborhoods, but also at the international level in the discussions and debates that are taking place. Um, the elements of, of drought as well as, as, a, uh, as a precursor to some of the movements. Um, and uh, hopefully, maybe towards the end of the day, we might look at the importance of really considering whether um, it is the time to also think about uh, transitional justice uh, the, and uh, the kind of hope for return and reconciliation uh, in the future. And I think there are very good indicators uh, of that possibility. We don't really hear the media talking anymore about Syria being split up. Um, I think the fact that most of the minority groups have held on tight, that very few Christian communities have actually fled, uh, even though uh, there was a period when the oldest Christian communities uh, on the outskirts of Damascus, the uh, Aramean-speaking communities, um, were under threat by uh, some of the more extremist jihadi groups. Um, there wasn't a mass flight out of the country. Uh, is uh, a reason for, I think, some element of optimism that there is a possibility of return at some point. So that's, I finished my role now uh, as uh, giving the introduction. I'm going to turn over now and chair. So can I turn over to Madeline? Well, thank you very much to the Migration Studies Society for welcoming me and for all of the supporters of this program. I think it's a crucial moment to be talking about some of the questions that are on the agenda today, and I hope that some of the thinking we might be able to do could contribute also to some of the wider reflections that need to be going on at policy level here. I'm going to speak to you briefly about the European Union's response in particular to the Syria crisis at different levels, and in particular with regard to the provision of protection directly to refugees. Um, I'll open with a quote from some UN heads of agencies last week who are struggling to work with the donor community to sustain interest and to ensure that the resources will be there to continue protecting the Syrian displaced. And what they had to say was that, looking back to one year ago, they had called for... They made an urgent appeal on behalf of the millions of displaced Syrians for support. And they had called for renewed efforts to try and bring the conflict to an end. Enough, we said, enough. But, unfortunately, in the view of those heads of UN agencies who are involved in providing support to uh, Syrians, both within and outside the country, um, they feel that they have not received the support that they seek. We have some expressions of what I think can be characterised as genuine goodwill and effort to try and address the ongoing crisis. And Uh, in particular, the view of the European Commissioner who is in charge of providing humanitarian aid, who last year at a high-level meeting in Geneva to discuss the Syria crisis spoke in very strong and clear terms about her view that European countries must be ready to keep not only their hearts and their wallets open to assist Syrians, but also their borders so this was a very clear and, I think, promising indication of her personal commitment to trying to do something to address this crisis. But, for better or for worse, Mrs Gorgieva doesn't have the power to decide, of course, who crosses borders. The European Union uh, uh, has, of course, a level of, co of competence in this field, but it remains the sovereign prerogative of member states to decide who 
enters and receives protection. I will very briefly today in my presentation speak very quickly about the challenge of humanitarian access, which is directly relevant to what the international community can and is able to do right now. And then in particular about what the European Union in particular, amongst other European countries, has done, both at the level of financial support and access to protection. And then the specific question of resettlement and humanitarian admission, which has been acknowledged as one of the most important gestures of solidarity and responsibility sharing that the EU could and should be undertaking now. And then perhaps if we have time and in our discussion later, we can think a bit about what this experience uh, tells us about the principle of solidarity for refugee protection and whether or not the EU's very significant efforts over the last years to build a common European asylum system that should be able to provide protection to those who need it is actually uh, showing that it is up to the challenge in the case of Syria. So just very, very quickly, I won't speak about the conflict in, uh, overall because there are many people in this room, I'm sure, who know more about the situation on the ground than I, but perhaps to particularly focus on the issue of humanitarian access. Um, it has in recent months become an increasingly difficult and dangerous situation for humanitarian agencies on the ground. So much so that the Security Council now has adopted uh, a resolution in very strong terms calling upon the parties to the conflict to allow unhindered humanitarian access. There was specific condemnation by the Council of increased terrorist attacks in regions where, where civilians are uh, living in extreme conditions of difficulty. The UN Secretary-General pointing out that a resolution on humanitarian access should not be necessary because this is something that should be uh, respected as a matter of international law. Um, and subsequent to that resolution, unfortunately, it seems uh, comprehensive documentation by the UN in a leaked document that came out some weeks later of the fact that there is flagrant disregard of the UN's calls to allow agencies access to civilian populations in need. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, we had figures from the UN that announced that there was some 3.5 million people amongst the internally displaced in the country who are in areas which are not accessible at this time to the humanitarian agencies due to the fighting. They're spread in some 200-odd locations around the country. So this gives us some kind of indication, really, of the enormous challenges that arise in trying to get protection to the internally displaced so moving briefly, just capturing quickly perhaps the picture as it is um, uh, today or in the last weeks for refugees. As Dawn mentioned, we have well over two and a half million refugees now who have crossed borders into neighbouring countries. Um, with the case of Lebanon, of course, this is equal to over a quarter of the number of the population, which means that if one were to uh, extend, to by analogy, compare that to arrivals in the UK, um, it would mean that we would have some 16 million Syrians seeking protection in the UK today. It gives us a sense of the degree of pressure that's placing on Lebanon. And other countries, including uh, a number who have themselves experienced strain of late, carrying enormous caseloads of uh, refugees, which are stretching their social and uh, infrastructure uh, systems at many levels. Um, just perhaps to give a scale of the pace and the magnitude of the movements, we had an exponential growth in displacement in 2013, with the total doubling in less than six months from March till October. Daily arrivals are also on an unimaginable scale, when one thinks particularly about uh, numbers that cause alarm and concern in Europe at the same time. In Turkey, in the early part of this year, with close to 1,000 people a day. In Jordan, it's been over 2,000 arriving at various points throughout the conflict. Um, and to put it all in perspective, twice as many refugees arrived in Turkey in the, uh, first, uh, in the six months since October 2013, as in the entire European Union and its near neighbours, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Norway and Iceland. So it gives us a sense of what relative strains this is placing on these countries. So what has the European Union in particular been ready to do, bearing in mind Mrs Gorgieva's uh, ambitious words earlier? Well, the truth is they've been generous in financial terms. 
We, uh, we have had responses to the UN's appeals, which have provided a very significant part of the international community's support. This slide just summarises the calls that the UN has made for financial assistance. The most recent joint appeal on the part of 155 UN agencies and NGOs, the Regional Response Plan 6, called for 4.2 billion US dollars for uh, support to refugees, refugees alone, not displaced people, um, to the end of this year. The projection the UN has made is that this could reach a total of 4 million refugees um, by that time. Uh, it seems like a large jump, but bear in mind, as I said last year, we had 1 million Syrians moving uh, across borders in the space of six months last year. So the, the total of 4 million seems eminently possible. So... The European Union's contribution in response to that, they have given member states and EU institutions together a total of 2.6 billion euro. Um, this is divided between contributions uh, from the member states bilaterally, which is over a billion, and then about uh, the same amount from the European Commission and the various humanitarian aid and development budget loans. Just to put this uh, in perspective also as regards relative contributions from different donors, the EU institutions for UNHCR alone have contributed close to 30% of its financial uh, receipts, not its financial needs, which are not met, but its receipts, um, followed by the US, by Kuwait, Japan, uh, Qatar, and then two European countries bilaterally, UK and Norway. Interestingly, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that a number of other countries in the Middle East are not present amongst the list of prominent donors to UN efforts to support Syrian refugees. Saudi Arabia and various others are not taking part in this. It's not because they are, of course, not uh, uh, trying to give significant contributions, but they prefer to give the money bilaterally to the governments hosting the refugees as opposed to the UN efforts. So, in response to arrivals of Syrians in the European Union, the Syrians who have actually asked for protection from the EU, um, what is the picture today? Well, we've had close to 90,000 asylum claims altogether lodged in the EU, 28 member states, plus Norway, Liechtenstein, Switzerland and Iceland. Sorry about that. I'll send the PowerPoint afterwards, by the way, if that would be useful for people to don't have to feverishly take notes. Um, so clearly a significant number in the course of three years, but compared to the numbers of people needing protection in the region, um, minuscule. We have many claims that have been surplus, that is to say Syrians who are already present in the European Union for work, study or other purposes, but who have made claims when they consider they are unable to return. That group, however, is by and large already um, in the system by now, and most of the additional claims coming through at this stage are new arrivals. The distribution of asylum seekers throughout the EU is very uneven. There are two countries which by far have received the lion's share. Sweden and Germany, close to 55% of the total. Um, uh, not the external border states, and not some of the states with uh, particular concerns around the operation of their asylum system right now. And there are a number of states who have received a very small number, uh, less than 150 as of the end of last year. I have a map there that's a Blurry, but this gives you a sense of the distribution within Europe, excluding Turkey, of course, um, of these asylum claims, which give you a sense of the unevenness of that. And here's another graphic representation that highlights the difference. So, in the light of all of these uh, figures, what's the response or what's the, the political picture of all of this? Well, we've had at least one... Uh, a European Parliament member, um, a left-wing Parliament member, who has been very vocal in criticising the EU's hesitancy about seeking to admit more anti-grant protection more generously, pointing out the contradiction that we hear is very much part of the discussion in the region, whereby it seems European countries in particular, with Turkey, are urging Turkey to keep its borders open to Syrians arriving, but at the same time to maintain strict border control along its frontier with Greece in order to ensure that people do not come irregularly to the European Union. So, in response to all of these claims, we have had, very positively, by and large, uh, a majority of claimants receiving international protection of some kind. But, what we, in fact, it's close to 90% altogether, as we understand as of now. 
But we do see a very significant variation in the form of protection that member states grant. There is a small group who uh, are listed there who provide refugee status to the overwhelming majority. The U in the UK's case in particular, it's almost 100% of Syrians who receive refugee status with the highest level of rights and the most secure status. But in a number of other states, it's overwhelmingly subsidiary protection which is a form of protection given by and large to people fleeing indiscriminate violence or the risk of torture and human or degrading treatment. Um, this status in, uh, by and large involves shorter residence periods and in many cases a lower level of entitlements around social assistance, uh, family reunification and others. We have seen a positive uh, evolution in the pro processing of Syrian claims in recent months in that uh, at least two countries that had suspended processing of Syrian claims for months on end have now resumed. Uh, Cyprus, um, citing quite openly its concern about a pull factor, uh, had suspended pro processing of claims altogether uh, as a measure of, of effective deterrence. But now, positively, Cyprus has been persuaded to resume, uh, which is something that the UN and the European Commission have strongly called for, given, of course, there is no sign uh, of the conflict reaching an end. There are other concerns, apart from the disparity in responses to protection claims in the EU, however, and access remains, I think, at the heart of this. We do continue to hear reports from very reliable sources of denials of access to EU territory and procedures at member state frontiers. We hear of returns, not to Syria itself, uh, not uh, by and large to countries in the region already hosting large numbers of refugees, but to a number of other countries, including some who could not necessarily, in uh, UNHCR's view at least, be said to have well-functioning asylum systems that could guarantee protection to those people. We do have some states that are prosecuting Syrians for irregular entry. This is not something which is lawful under the Geneva Convention for those who claim asylum, but the reality is that there are a number of Syrians who, when they arrive in the EU, do not necessarily claim asylum in the first country in which they arrive. And those people, we understand, are in many cases being subject to criminal penalties. We have very strict approaches to uh, assessing nationality on the part of Syrian asylum claimants, language tests, scrutiny of documentation, um, which UNHCR in a number of countries has criticised strongly because the conditions of many people's departure means that they were simply not in, uh, uh, capable of taking material that could have verified their nationality. A rigid application of the Dublin regulation returns to other countries within Europe and, unfortunately, quite a widespread use of detention on the part of a number of states. Again, predominantly for Syrians who do not claim asylum, but given UNHCR's view that almost all Syrians fleeing the country now are refugees, this is considered to be unwarranted. Also some who have been rejected, uh, but who are not returnable. Um, what we also see in terms of some challenges to Europe's response to Syrian arrivals is um, our inability or perhaps an unwillingness to undertake contingency planning for the prospect of further large-scale arrivals. Some countries along the Mediterranean in particular um, are, in the view of a number of observers, at serious risk of receiving significantly larger numbers as time passes, and particularly as conditions become more difficult in countries in the region. But there have not been comprehensive or particularly uh, effective contingency planning efforts. There's also been a great deal of talk amongst interior ministers, in particular in Europe, about what they see as a major danger um, emerging from the Syria crisis, which is that of EU nationals going over to fight and returning and posing a security risk for the EU. Um, the UNHCR would argue that the primary concern of such ministries should rather be providing protection in line with their legal obligations, given that at the end of the day these numbers of people allegedly going to fight are said to be small. But it remains a very high political priority. Just perhaps to mention very quickly two uh, areas where we see, I think, particularly the strain uh, that emerges with response to in, in, where, where we have unsatisfactory responses to Syrian arrivals. Bulgaria is a country which traditionally has received less than a thousand asylum claims a year since its accession to the EU in 2004. But last year it received a sudden and dramatic jump such that uh, we had close to 9,000 claims from Syrians predominantly in Bulgaria last year, and there's been uh, some 11,000 that have come in the last six months to date. 
The result was a reception system that was unable to cope, people living in uh, extreme squalor and difficult conditions, and the asylum claim system also unable to manage. The, there was significant resources mobilised from the European Commission, from the European Asylum Support Office, from UNHCR, but that this was necessary after these people arrived and that there could not have been measures and standby arrangements planning in place to cope with this. There's something of an indictment of the system and its flexibility. We also have, I think, a particular area of concern now with the increasing numbers of Syrians who are arriving by sea from Libya but also from Egypt and other uh, states. What we've seen in Italy, with, uh, also with the Mare Nostrum operation that's been running since last year, is there's been a dramatic jump of some, to some 20,000 sea arrivals, including a significant number of Syrians, um, and uh, a great deal of concern also on Italy's part about the lack of comprehensive European responses to them dealing with those arrivals once they are in Italy. There is, um, I think, a certain degree of frustration that Italy is now expressing about the fact that it is not receiving the the kind of support it feels it should get from other EU member states to deal with and be able to provide protection to a lot of those arriving. That being said, it's important perhaps also to note that quite a significant number of the Syrians who are arriving in Italy, we understand, are not necessarily claiming protection but are seeking to move on. Perhaps this simply demonstrates that Italy's system needs further reinforcement and needs to be uh, made better able to cope um, in order to make it uh, possible for those people to claim protection and enjoy their rights meanwhile. Okay, very quickly then, before I finish, on the issue of resettlement and uh, humanitarian admission. Resettlement, of course, refers to the offering uh, by asylum countries of places for refugees who are in first countries of asylum um, and who cannot, for various reasons, have a durable solution in the place to which they have fled. Um, The European Union has progressively tried to increase its contribution to global resettlement over recent years, uh, but it remains a relatively minor contributor worldwide, with less than 5,000 resettled refugees to the European Union 28 member states last year. Um, very much smaller than a number of other countries in the industrialised world. But still, it's, uh, it's progressively and slowly increasing. Um, there's been a call from UNHCR for a large effort on resettlement of Syrians, um, and a number of European countries are responding to that. We have also had a number who have been, expressed their readiness to undertake not resettlement, but something called humanitarian admission, which foresees temporary admission of Syrians for a certain time. But which should bring the advantage of expedited swift processing, enabling them to arrive faster. These programs seek to target particularly vulnerable people, as well as people whose personal security is under threat in the countries where they may be. UNHCR's call total in total under this program has been for 30,000 by the end of this year, um, and with a, a more ambitious target then for up to 100,000 Uh, Syrians to be resettled or admitted under humanitarian admission by the end of 2016. To date, we have had some 13 EU member states who have responded, um, and the total number of offers is around 18,000. So two-thirds approximately of the total that uh, UNHCR has called for for this year. But again, the distribution of the uh, responsibility for this group has been uneven, We have Germany, which you'll remember is one of the largest recipients of Syrian asylum claims, has offered to take some 12,000 of those. So uh, clearly making the largest efforts and uh, providing the greatest contribution on the behalf of all of the European Union member states. The UK has also uh, recently expressed its readiness to do so, and the US is apparently ready to offer uh, resettlement places to an undefined number. But nonetheless, we think we have, I think, clearly here a gesture that is not uh, uh, really reaching the large number of Syrians who might need protection through this means. Um, there has been some concerns and questions raised by states in the region about resettlement, about whether or not this runs the risk of diverting resources away from provision of support and assistance on the ground, um, whether this means that registration of those people who are arriving over the borders in such large numbers um, might be diverted into resettlement processing. And then, of course, the uh, overarching question that arises in this context 
about whether or not a group of 30,000 refugees potentially being resettled out of the region is not really a rather insignificant contribution given the scale of the burden that those states are receiving. Against this background, there's been a number of calls by asylum advocates, the UN and others, to the EU to do more, in particular with regards to this question of admission of people physically to the EU. So in addition to resettlement and granting of unhindered access for asylum seekers who need protection arriving at borders, UNHCR is promoting the idea that states should look at using more flexible approaches to other tools, family reunification for Syrians who have family members displaced in the region, other forms of visas, provision of scholarships for students, um, all of things, all of which are well within the member states' legal powers if they choose to prioritise this. Um, uh, to date, the response, however, to those calls has been limited. Finally, just very briefly, some of you may be aware that the European Union actually has on its books a piece of legislation that was specifically designed for a situation of so-called mass influx. Whether or not the situation we see now uh, in Germany and Sweden could be termed a mass influx is a question for discussion. There's no uh, numerical figure fixed on that. But... uh, uh, What's become very clear in the discussions to date is the EU, until now, has not been ready to consider use of the Temporary Protection Directive. Whilst this would be one way to ensure that people could very swiftly get access to the European Union and receive high levels of entitlements to enable them to get on with their lives whilst waiting for the conflict to end, it's not something that member states are ready to take on because of their concern about its potential pull factor effect. Um, and this has been openly admitted in discussion. I won't go through that. So, unfortunately, until now, this hasn't been considered as a response. So, I'll end there, but perhaps later on, when we discuss this, a few questions that we can reflect upon. Are we seeing solidarity between member states uh, in this case, bearing in mind that there is a binding legal obligation under the EU treaties for states to show solidarity to each other in the asylum context? Are we seeing solidarity with other states? Is it adequate? Again, there's a treaty obligation for partnership and cooperation in that context. What else, what other means, what other tools could EU states be using? How can there be more coherence in the way in which the EU is responding across its humanitarian aid, foreign affairs and internal policy responses? The security focus. And what really can we draw from all of this for the future operation of Europe's asylum system in order to ensure better results for protection of refugees. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Malta Minelli. I'm a PhD student at the University of Bristol. And today I'll be talking about uh, uh, Turkish laws and policies on temporary protection and protection of Syrians in Turkey. But before that, I would like to uh, thank you to Migration uh, Studies uh, Society for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, this is the timeline chart for the evolution of Turkish legislation on asylum and international protection. As you see today, I will first start with the 1999-1994 regulation on procedures and principles related to population movements and asylum seekers. Then we see that a new law is adopted on foreigners and international protection last year, and it entered fully in effect last month. Um, before talking about the international obligations of Turkey regarding refugee protection, uh, the first thing I need to mention is that Turkey is party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. However, it maintains a geographical limitation. With the standing reservation to this Refugee Convention, Turkey is ob- not obliged to grant refugee status to asylum seekers coming outside of Europe. Therefore, it is only obliged to grant refugee status to asylum seekers coming from Europe. This is um, a very important element that affects international obligations of Turkey regarding refugee law. Um, The 1994 regulation was the first instrument that dealt with issues concerning refugees and asylum seekers in Turkey. When we uh, look closer to this regulation, we see that it was adopted after the Iraqi mass influx to Turkey in 1989 and 1991. 
Therefore, we see a very dominant security approach in this regulation. When you look at these provisions, there is a very dominant focus on national security and government control. And we don't see much about the rights of asylum seekers and refugees in this regulation. It is also a secondary source under Turkish domestic law. Therefore, it gave um, wide discretion to the Council of Ministers and government authorities to uh, decide on the issues of refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, my argument today is 1994 regulation failed to introduce a comprehensive protection framework that complies with international uh, law and human rights. Why? Because first, it discriminated from asylum seekers coming from Europe and outside of Europe following the reservation to the Refugee Convention. Therefore, the legal status and entitlements of these asylum seekers and refugees were entirely different. Uh, the regulation introduced a very strict time limit for asylum seekers to lodge their asylum applications. It was initially five days, so if asylum seekers failed to do so, their asylum applications were not being considered. As I stated, except um, asylum seekers were granted right to uh, religion of, uh, freedom of religion and um, also a very limited right to access to health care, we don't see any provision dealing with the core um, entitlements of refugees in this document. Uh, when we look at the provisions regarding mass influx chasings, uh, we don't see any provision that still deals how to govern a mass influx chasin. The regulation only states that Given that Turkey's international obligations are not uh, are respected, Turkey has the right to close its borders. So it does not say anything about how these people coming a part of the mass inflows will be dealt with, protected, so on. Um, Following this argument, the observation report of the Turkish Parliament Human Rights Observation Commission after the Syrian flight began noted that the 1994 regulation and its provisions regarding mass fluctuations are definitely outdated and Turkey needs um, a new legislation maybe to deal with this mass fluctuation. Following this comments, uh, Turkey adopted its uh, law on foreigners and international protection in 2013. Uh, we see that it definitely is an improvement uh, compared to the 1994 regulation. Uh, some of its positive aspects is that it codifies the principle of non-refoulement and Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights very clearly. Therefore, it states that asylum seekers will not be uh, sent back to the country of origin if they would face persecution, uh, torture, inhuman or degrading treatment. Also, parallel to the EU uh, qualification directive, it introduced subsidy protection regime, which, as Madeleine said, it um, aimed to protect people who deserve international protection but cannot be uh, protected within the 1951 Refugee Conventions framework. Um, it abolished the time limit to lodge asylum applications that the 1994 regulation set out. It limited detention grounds for asylum seekers and refugees. It introduced time limits for government to decide on the asylum application, for, and for now it's six months. Uh, also, it introduced a very clear set of rights for asylum seekers and refugees, including a right to appeal when somebody's asylum application has been rejected. Despite this positive aspect, we still see that at some areas uh, there are some shortcomings. Uh, the new law also follows the reservation of the Turkey um, to the Refugee Convention, and it keeps the geographical limitation. Um, it incorporates EU law to the domestic Turkish law, however, not just positive aspects, it also incorporates the uh, negative aspects as well. So widely discussed and criticized European law and asylum practices, such as safe third country, safe country of origin, and accelerated processes are also incorporated to the Turkish law. And this is a negative aspect. As we will continue and see, uh, this law gives wide discretion to the Council of Ministers on the matters concerning temporary protection, and in my opinion, it should be uh, more defined by the law rather than a regulation to be issued by Council of Ministers. And there are still no durable solutions for asylum seekers and refugees except resettlement and repatriation. So under this law, we don't see any chance of asylum seekers and refugees as long as they don't belong to Turkish descent, to be uh, naturalized and integrated to Turkish society. So 
Overall, we can say that the new legislation marks a shift from the security discourse, which was dominant in the 1994 regulation and suggests a more protection-oriented approach. Um, it regulates many areas that the 1994 regulation failed to do so. However, uh, asylum seekers and refugees can now access the information regarding their asylum applications. They can access the interpretive services, education, social welfare, medical care, and they can access the labor market after six months of their registration. And if they are already uh, determined as refugees, they have an immediate right to access the labor market. So overall, this law is definitely a step towards bet, uh, for a better international protection regime and a better domestic law on asylum. Before going on and talking about temporary protection of Syrians in Turkey, I would like to outline what is temporary protection. Uh, we do not have any uh, instrument on international level that defines what temporary protection is and what entails as a protection framework. However, it is possible to come up with some common elements that are common in the um, temporary protection practices that also we can deduct from uh, the only instrument that formalized temporary protection on a regional level, which is the temporary protection directive, and uh, several UNHCR instruments such as temporary protection guidelines um, and uh, EXCOM conclusions. Uh, some of the post-temporary protection practices include the Comprehensive Plan of Action introduced for Indo-Chinese refugees through 1970s and until 1990s, uh, protection of Bosnians in some of the European states, and humanitarian evacuation program implemented for Kosovars. When we look at all these practices, UNHCR instruments and the Temporary Protection <laughs> Directive, we see that uh, the, these common elements are... Um, Therefore, every temporary protection regime. First, it is mainly an exceptional procedure to be used only in massive fluctuations. It is a regime that is built on the principle of non-refoulement. Therefore, um, temporary protection regimes secure admission of persons who seek refuge in massive fluctuations and uh, provide them temporary protection until durable solutions are available. Uh, it is generally a group-based protection, therefore there is no need or individual status determination is inapplicable or impractical. It grants not the full refugee rights defined in the 1951 convention, but it grants mostly emergency rights, somehow basic human rights such as access to food, water, shelter and health care. Um, for the purposes of this paper, I would like to define temporary protection as a protection framework that guarantees admission to the person seeking refuge in mass and flux situations to the host states when individual status determination is impractical or inapplicable, provides these basic minimum treatment in accordance with human rights until durable solutions are available. Coming to the Syrian flight, actually some part of my presentation coincides with uh, Urs' presentation, so I'll try to keep the common points quick. Um, as we all know, uh, the flight began, the Syrian flight began in 2011. Most of the um, Syrians sought refuge in Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, and Lebanon. The alleged use of chemical weapons, fighting, airstrikes, shelling increased the number of asylum seekers seeking refuge in uh, the host states. It is reported that one million Syrians have crossed um, the Turkish borders over the last three years, and as we know, UNHCR, I think, uh, says that there is more than 700 right now in Turkey. Um, prior to the foreign policies, Turkey kept its border borders open, and one of the conse uh, consequences of temporary protection regime in Turkey is that Syrians are not accepted as asylum seekers or refugees under the domestic law, but they are given uh, temporary protection, therefore they are named as temporary protection beneficiaries. Uh, when we look at the legal framework, domestic law of Turkey about Syrians, we see that uh, when the flight began, they are called guests by the Turkish authorities, and they are not called asylum seekers or refugees. And uh, the authorities of the Turkish government mentioned that a temporary protection regime has been implemented for Syrians. But when we, until the new law was adopted, we didn't really know what this temporary protection meant for Syrians. What were the entitlements of these uh, protected persons? And in, in 2012, 
These issues have been discussed in the parliament sessions and the main opposition party, uh, CHP, uh, the Republican People's Party, actually um, lodged a formal inquiry about the Syrian situation. It asked about the guest status and what it entailed until uh, what time this temporary protection will, be, uh, will continue and so on. And uh, the answer to this inquiry received, uh, provided by the Ministry of Interior was that the temporary protection legal uh, basis was actually a guideline, but the content cannot be made public. So after the inquiry, we still didn't know what this protection status entailed. I argue today that uh, the ambiguity of lack of a clear basis of temporary protection for Syrians in Turkish law and the inadequacies that I talked about um, regarding the 1994 regulation were one of the reasons that this law has adopted in 2013. We see an, an adoption of the law on international protection and temporary protection um, becomes and has a new legal basis under Article um, 91 and um, to coordinate all the efforts regarding temporary protection, a general directorate of migration management has been established under the, uh, this new law. When we look, of, uh, look at Article 91 of the Law on Foreigners and International Protection, uh, the first paragraph gives a legal basis for temporary protection regime. It states that temporary protection may be provided to foreigners who have been forced to leave their country and cannot return to the country they left, have arrived at or crossed borders of Turkey in masses seeking emergency and temporary protection. Um, so Syrians fit this description to the groups uh, which... Uh, temporary protection can be implemented. And when we look at the second paragraph, it says that all features of temporary protection, which is essential to determine whether this protection framework will actually uh, improve things in Turkey or not, it says that proceedings to be followed on reception rights and uh, how temporary protection ends will be determined by a future regulation issued by the Council of Ministers. So we see that although the new law gives a clear legal basis to build on temporary protection, it does not say anything about the limitations of this temporary protection. Um, this regulation has not been issued so far. Um, the law has been in effect for a month now, so we can say it is quite early to say that whether it will bring substantial changes to the protection framework. Um, the new law also talks about the establishment of a new migration management unit that will undertake, uh, that will uh, somehow um, be responsible for every registration status determination and all procedural aspects of temporary protection in Turkey. So this was the legal framework and what happens in practice. In practice, all Syrians, Palestinian refugees and um, stateless persons in Syria are eligible for temporary protection in Turkey. Um, Syrians are expected to register with the police and granted uh, residence permits. As Urs said, they may choose to live in one of the camps or they may choose to live outside of the camps as long as they could uh, sustain their everyday lives. Um, the camp conditions um, are declared to be adequate and good by uh, several reports. So people living in camps have access to food, shelter, education, basic services and medical assistance. They can also have access to training and leisure activities. They have a limited freedom of movement and limited access to labor market. And although, as we said, the conditions in camps are quite adequate and well, can be defined as well, the, for people living outside of the camps, there are many substantial challenges. Uh, in theory, they have access to, they have a right to access to medical care, education, and labor market. However, um, in practice, we see that they have, there are substantial problems with regard to access to education, as we said, uh, because of language barriers. Um, also access to housing because there are inadequate housing in uh, specific regions of Turkey because of the Syrian flight. And um, there are substantial also challenges on access to social security system because right now the domestic law in Turkey requires employers to register the Syrians that are working with them. And as you can understand, most of the employers are not really registering them to the social security system. So. 
as to make an analysis of all issues until any new regulation is adopted by the Council of Ministers, the scope of temporary protection is still unclear. It is early to comment, therefore, whether the new law has a substantial impact of the protection standards that are afforded to Syrians in Turkey. Um, there are many challenges ahead, though. UNHCR uh, 2014 serial res uh, regional response plan suggests that Turkish government expects uh, 1.5 million by the end of 2014. The increasing number of Syrians um, is capable of altering the social, cultural, religious and demographic balance in southeastern region of Turkey. Also, the financial costs, as uh, my colleagues explained, are quite burdensome. And the question we need to consider is, is this temporary protection sustainable? Because temporary protection in nature is a temporary measure to mass fluctuations. And as the years go on, and if the conflict doesn't end soon, um, we don't know how long Turkey will sustain this uh, temporary protection regime for Syrians. I would like to make two main suggestions to the government to keep the good conditions in the camps and to keep... Uh, the open border policy alive. First, Turkey should strengthen its temporary protection regime by introducing clear standards to temporary protection. Therefore, the regulation that will be issued by the Council of Ministers should define who will receive temporary protection, uh, what would be the rights of temporary protection beneficiaries, what is the maximum duration of the temporary protection, uh, when temporary protection will come to an end, and also Starting from when asylum applications of the persons who are temporarily protected will begin to be processed by the national authorities and the UNHCR. Also, um, as we talked about the burden that the Syrian mass flow flight uh, brought to Turkey, Turkey should search ways to transfer some of the burden uh, of this mass influx to third countries via burden-sharing schemes. It could be through resettlement offers, financial or material burden sharing. And the, the, um, the point I would like to mention is that Turkey can um, get into these burden sharing schemes with the EU member states because I believe this will be uh, beneficial for both of the parties, for Turkey, so that it can lighten its burden that the Syrian light, uh, flight brought, and for member states, because if the protection regime in Turkey actually collapses, then we will see a mass flow to European shores. And under Dublin regulations right now, the EU already, and the states bordering the EU, like Greece, Bulgaria, and Italy, has um, pressures just by the very small numbers fleeing Syria. And if and somehow the protection regime collapses in Turkey or deteriorates, then the Syrians will try to keep uh, reach the European shores. Therefore, uh, burden-sharing arrangements uh, should be considered f uh, with both sides. As to conclude, I began with the 1994 regulation that failed to introduce an asylum system in accordance with the international law and human rights. Um, the, 2013 legislation has many features, uh, positive features, which improved the protection standards in Turkey for asylum seekers and refugees. However, despite these positive aspects, it is far from solving all problems. With the entry in force of this new law, temporary protection has gained a new um, legal basis under domestic law. However, until a further regulation is adopted, it is not possible to comment whether this no, new law brings substantial changes to the protection of Syrians in Turkey. And I would like to conclude um, that two things that Turkey can do right now is to first define temporary protection regime clearly, and second, search ways to lighten its burden uh, via burden-sharing schemes. Thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.